Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Wither and I'm joined by my best friend Nick Tostel. How you doing there, Hammer? Excited to be here. Nocturnal Animals. Whew, heavy hitter today. Whew. As we were researching Amy Adams, we realized we didn't want to let her go so easily, so we thought we'd dive into one of her best films. And what better film to choose than the cheerful, wholesome, gloriously romantic Nocturnal Animals? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. But really, this one hits hard for us for so many reasons. We have a little unique insight into the making of this movie, which we'll get into. But let me burn through this plot really quick. It's complicated as hell, and I'm going to be crude, as I often am with the plot description, and dumb this down a little bit, or at least try. Here it goes. Susan Murrow, Amy Adams, is a cold, emotionally vacant art gallery owner in swanky hot shit Los Angeles. She's unhappily married to Army Hammer. She lives in this cold art deco postmodern fortress. And one day she randomly receives a proof of her first husband's book, which is titled Nocturnal Animals and dedicated to Susan. Now, as Susan reads the book, the film fractures into three narratives, which it blends and edits together perfectly. Narrative one is Susan in the present reading the book and trying to come to terms with mistakes she's made in the past. Narrative two is a tricky one. This is Susan's visual interpretation of the book she's reading. And in her visual interpretation, her ex-husband, Edward, is played by Jake Gyllenhaal, who also plays her ex-husband in the first narrative. But now Jake Gyllenhaal is referred to as Tony, and Tony encounters something awful with his family while driving to a vacation. The third narrative is Susan and Edward in their real-life past showing us how they got together and how they eventually broke up. That's the setup for Nocturnal Animals. And in the middle of these three narratives, a lot of really fucked up shit happens. But first, before we keep going, I love this movie because we got to experience this movie for the first time together. I got special passes to an L.A. screening. We sat, we watched, and marveled. And then at the end, Tom Ford walks in and does a really long, thorough discussion about the movie. And during this Q&A, you and I kept looking at each other with these insanely wide eyes, which was our silent way of saying, holy shit, Tom Ford is one of us. Like, yeah, yeah. The way this guy breaks down cinema, explains cinema, sees cinema, is precisely how we do. And I did not anticipate that at all. Um, Nocturnal Animals is a complicated movie, and he made perfect sense of it. It was a great all-timer Q&A for me, and is it fair to say that that Q&A kind of changed how we approach our work? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. For for a lot of reasons that I and and um I want to touch on on them because outside of finding someone who's made a movie like he is that speaks our language, that meant a lot to me and I'm sure it did for you too. So at that time, this was 2016, and Alex and I had just gotten done with pretty much everything there was to do with my short film, There I Go. Movie, we just got back from Palm Springs. The festival circuit was kind of over. It was kind of a wrap. And we did not have anything on our horizons artistically. Like maybe we had a couple of ideas, but certainly no projects that were like, okay, this is what's next. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of in that really uncomfortable 
awful artistic space of God, what do we do now? At least that's how I was feeling. And I really hate that feeling. And so when we went to see this, finding that Tom Ford was someone that shared the exact same ideals and values when it comes to filmmaking, the same points of view, like I say, like you spoke our language. I find that anytime, whether you're a filmmaker, you're a writer, you're an actor, you're a painter, if you're any type of artist, when you find someone that speaks to you like this, you got to hold on to that because to me, that was a sign that we're in, we're in the right direction. I remember at the end of that mm-hmm. Q&A, we, we left, we were in the parking lot and I told you, I go, we got to keep going. Yeah. No matter what happens, this right here to me meant that we're doing the right thing in our lives. We are on the right path. We don't know what's next, but stay on it because you don't get little gifts and signs like that out of nowhere. You got to be in your right alignment. And when they come, they come and I recognize them. And that to me was for us and where we were at in our careers was a sign to keep going. So I really found that to be a very, very special Q&A, special movie, but special moment right there. Yeah, absolutely. And you framed it, you set that up in a way that I I guess I'd kind of lost sight of because me personally, I went from making three films back to back to back. If you look at my IMDb, they're spread out a little bit in years, but I went from making earrings, I mean, a month later to pre-production on weight. And then as soon as weight was done, I was shooting and editing There I Go with you. And I didn't really have that creative lull for like four years because I was I got frustrated a lot because working on a feat the same feature film for three years is really, really frustrating. <laughs> but by the time we arrive at this Q&A, it's exactly how you just said it. There's a really, for me personally, there's a really scary and unsettling thing that sets in when I don't have that creative thing mm-hmm. to work toward. And yeah. I, I will never be short of ideas. I'll never be short of feature length scripts. I have them here. But at that point, you were coming off your first thing. Everything I had written was too big for what I could afford to film. So it's like, we got to either come up with something a little smaller, but yeah, we still, we just have to keep going. And then the next thing we made was, you know, the most personal thing I'll probably ever do. I am alive. And it, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what you have access to. You just got to keep going. And if you mm-hmm. want to make something, you just have to make it, whether it's at our level Tom Ford's level, J.J. Abrams' level, who cares? Just yeah. go out and start creating stuff. And it's a good time to talk about Tom Ford because obviously Ford became famous as one of the most sought-after fashion designers in the world. And I'm certainly not qualified to talk about his legacy in fashion, but his influence in that field is constant. He's dressed seemingly every modern major figure and – I don't know. I guess one day I would love to be able to afford one of his pocket squares. (laughs) (laughs) But for our purposes, Ford first directed in 2009 when he released A Single Man starring Colin Firth. It's still my favorite Firth performance. I really wish he would have won the Oscar that year as opposed to the following year. Oh, well. It takes Tom Ford seven years to direct another movie. He's a busy guy. And he delivers the head trip that is Nocturnal Animals. And... If you haven't seen A Single Man or Nocturnal Animals, 
Let me tell you that Tom Ford can direct and can direct well. This man has a handle on aesthetics that is so, so clear. Nocturnal Animals is so visually arresting. This movie was made for $22.5 million, but looks far more lavish than that. The cinematography is so lush and full. The editing is really playful but concise. The performances are very specific, but they all land. There's a really cool blink-and-you'll-miss-it director flourish in this movie that I wanted to see if you caught. The first time Amy Adams begins to read Edward's book, as soon as she starts visualizing the book, bam, we cut to her visualization and Edward slash Tony's daughter is just standing still. She's not moving, almost as if Tom Ford hasn't said action yet behind the camera, almost as if Susan hasn't begun reading the story yet. And as soon as she gets to those first few words, then this actress playing the daughter starts walking. And it only lasts for a second, but it's brilliant because it's it's really like the action can't begin in this second fake narrative until Amy Adams starts reading the book. And then she does. And that's when the actress starts walking. This movie is full of little cool shit like that. I love this stuff. And he buries a lot of, I mean, look at a single man, the way he's enhancing the saturation in Mm -hmm. camera as he gets kind of turned on. I don't, I honestly don't know if I'd ever seen that in a movie before. And that's, I mean, I, I have seen, of course, colors change and stuff, but in someone's face as they're actively becoming turned on for like the color to come back in their face and into the whole movie, that's a great little touch that he's just like, yeah. maybe it's not appropriate to do this. Fuck it. I don't care. I'm a fashion designer. Like I'm taking myself seriously as a filmmaker, but I'm going to throw in some of this weird shit and hope that it lands. And to people like you and I, it lands. It absolutely. And, and what I also love about that scene you're talking about is that he does not make it easy for you. Mm-mm. He That cut from when she starts to read, it, we there is no clue that tells you, okay, we're entering story time now. Correct. We are going to, and this continues when we change narratives all throughout the movie. So if you just think that, oh, we've cut to a different scene, and you're not kind of clued into, okay, we're just jumping in, But real quick, to talk about Tom Ford a little bit more and his approach to filmmaking, I watched an interview with him where he, because he's constantly getting shit for directing. Yes, all the time. Yeah, which it's clear you've never seen any of his movies if you're still questioning whether or not he should be directing. Right. But he had a very cool way to sum up his take on that, is that... In the fashion world, he knows what sells. It's a very commercial-minded thought process. People want to feel a certain way when they look a certain way. If he's talking about a single man and, and he's talking about a character who is so grief-ridden he's going to kill himself because of his partner's death, he goes, put that into clothes. Is that going to sell? No one's going to buy that. But that's what film allows him to do. He's like, I am a human being. I see emotions. I feel things. I have a way I want to express them. I can't do that through fashion, but I can do that through film. And to basically be like, fuck what everyone thinks. I'm going to make what I want to make, and I'm going to make it successful. And to do it artfully 
is just a testament to his talent. And also, it's always worth watching Tom Ford talk because the guy's got the most soothing voice you'll ever hear. <laughs> well, okay, you just set this up. I was going to go here, but I'm going to do it. A little bit of trivia. If anyone would like to know, <laughs> the most attractive human being I've ever seen in person. It's a, it's a tie. It's Tom Ford. At that, I, I, was, I was stunned. I was put in my place. Like he, We walked by him and I was like, hello. Hello, <laughs> and then second is Robin Wright. I saw her after the House of House of Cards season two premiere. I got to go to that, and she and it. I mean, just gorgeous, gorgeous. Anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. It's got everything to do with everything. <laughs> I really get pissed off at the argument that artists should stay in their lane. Yeah. So like, Lady Gaga is not allowed to act because she sings. Ray Allen can't be in He Got Game because he plays ball. Like that's bullshit. It is. It doesn't always work out. But when it does, who gives a shit what else they do with their life? I mean, they're not doing something criminal. He's a fucking world-renowned fashion designer. He's allowed to make movies, and they're really fucking good movies. All right, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I love this guy. Amy Adams is Susan. We talked a lot about Amy Adams in our last episode, but she carries this movie. She's the glue holding these three narratives together. And her transformation from young New York City Susan to older, colder L.A. Susan is incredible. I love how detached and icy she is in the present day. Ford really knows that he can hold on her face or even one of her eyes and she'll grab us. That's all you need to do. Put the camera on her. This is one of my favorite performances of hers. It's the complete antithesis to something like Enchanted or Miss Pettigrew. And I can't believe it's the same performer. She was the same year she's in Arrival. And I found it really interesting that in Arrival and in this film, which were only released a few months apart, they end in the exact same way. I'm not even giving away the content of how it ends. They both end on Adams's face, almost with the same angle, showing the left side of her face thinking and weighing her decisions. Yeah. And I love that, that there's no way that was on purpose. It's completely random. But I watch these back to back and I'm like, it's the same damn shot construction on her face. And it's like, yeah, because that's all you need. You just need Amy Adams's a face, a look, a smile, and she'll sell your movie. Bottom line, if you have Amy Adams in your movie and you don't know what the ending is, just put it on her face. <laughs> <laughs> you're golden. I love this performance because your point to the antithesis of anything she's ever really done is because it's true. She's never been so cold. She is just so unhappy in her life that it's so it's almost uncomfortable to watch her in a good way because you you don't see her ever like that right even even in her other performances like you something like the master where she's you know she's not cold though she is not lifeless she is so alive in this movie being lifeless that it's captivating to watch so i really um Really appreciated that uh, she kind of chose to go in this direction, and it's believable. And also, you know, to see where it starts, where she starts emotionally, to where the movie ends emotionally, I love it. I just absolutely love it. It does not get better for her. It really, oh, it's a dagger to the heart. It's great. One of the things about this movie the most complicated thing about it is Jake Gyllenhaal, in my opinion, as Edward and Tony. Gyllenhaal has a really hard job here. He's playing two parts. One is the innocent, romantic artist Edward in the real past. 
and the other is the fictional version of himself, Tony, in the book. And Gyllenhaal has a hard time here because we've seen Jake Gyllenhaal kick ass, and the core event of this movie is an emotionally brutal kidnapping that Gyllenhaal can do nothing to stop. But why? Why can't Edward slash Tony get out of the car and stop these three guys trying to kidnap his wife and daughter? They don't have guns. Fight them. Wrestle. Break something. Fight. We could feel that tension, that lack of masculine ability cutting right through the theater as we were watching this. We didn't really get why this was happening. And then it clicked. This horrible event is not real. This is Susan's interpretation of Edward's text. And this text is based on something horrible that Susan did to Edward when they were married. So in real life, and real is funny to say here because the whole thing is just a damn movie, but the real Edward was greatly hurt by Susan, and his only chance at redemption is this book. I think this scene, this kidnapping scene, the way Gyllenhaal plays it, I think it's the reason why the movie didn't do better. This is one of the most disturbing scenes I've ever seen in a movie. And it's really complicated. There's no blood. There's no weaponry. There's no sexual assault. That all happens later off screen. This scene is screaming, pulling, terrifying talking. But because many people, many men specifically, at least men that I talk to about this movie, because these men have an idea of what a man should be, that they hate to see when a man is weak on screen mm -hmm. in this way. This is a really, really complicated scene for that reason, and it's incredibly hard to watch, but wow, what power. I think to even make it even more complex, it is very clear in some of those, um, in the narrative when they go back to the past, that he is very, very affected when he assumes that she is calling him weak. Mm -hmm. So he obviously, even at a younger age, felt that conflict within himself that he felt that maybe he was weak so by putting that in his book he's also exercising some of his own demons about what it means to be a weak man because the fact is the fact like this might be her interpretation that we're seeing but if we're reading that text same shit happens mm -hmm. like he does not do anything to help his family in that way and my favorite part of that whole entire disturbing scene is some of the little throwaways that really clue in how scared he is it's because at first they don't make him they just tell him to get out of the car and he does and starts unloading the the luggage there's a thing that there's a shakiness in his voice and he's trying on so uncomfortably to be polite Mm -hmm. He goes, sorry, we just have a lot back here. It's just going to take me a little while. It's like, yeah, you can see like we're we're just trying to he's trying to make small talk. And it's because like if you're in that situation and you're not taking action, you're trying to understand it. You're trying to you're trying to make it not what it is and he can't face it. And so he's just talking. At least that's what my take on it was. And it's so uncomfortable. Yeah. There's a lot buried into that. And like you said, if you listen closely, I mean, I watch all movies with subtitles on for this reason. When they're having the whole like tire debate and they're like, you know, it's all right. We'll do it for you. Just get everything out. It cuts to outside of the car. Gyllenhaal's still in the car. And off camera, you can barely hear him say to his wife, I, I don't know how to change a tire. Yeah. And like those little details matter greatly because 
he's not your typical man's man. Mm-hmm. And and one personal thing that I love about it, I I like seeing this in any time where we get to see someone play the antithesis of what they're actually exhibiting behavior-wise, is that his body is, like, chiseled. Like, there's this scene where he's... Yeah, exactly, exactly. This is a man who looks like he should be able to take care or handle himself, but he can't. I love that. Mm -hmm. I think that that's just a very, very telling contradiction. Absolutely. I mean, if you have Jason Bateman playing that role, I love Bateman, but I'm not going to feel the physical intimidation that he could potentially exude. Jake Gyllenhaal, we know. I mean, that dude's built. He's built in this movie, and you see that, and he still is powerless, metaphorically. (laughs) And he has a lot of great scenes in the movie, but of course, his best scenes are when he's playing off Michael Shannon as Bobby Andes. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, oh, man. The low-angle push-in shot of him, that introduction, the sound of the wind. He's smoking. He's resting his hand on his pistol. It's just, oh, it's great stuff. Shannon completely steals this movie, even when he isn't even on screen. When when he's not on screen, you're like, bring him back, bring him back. Where's Bobby? Where's Bobby? It's got to be my favorite Shannon performance. I, I really love him in this. He's very in tune with everything that he's doing. He's kind of on a completely different planet, but he still nails it, you know. But you smoke all the time. Yeah, well, that's how it works. <laughs> so much. God, tell me about Bobby Andes. I don't think that there is an actor on this planet living today that I enjoy watching more than Michael Shannon. I just love everything this man ever does. He is just so, like you said, he's on another planet. He's on another planet as Michael Shannon, and he just brings that to his roles. Always. And, and, it, and this is perfect for that because this character is completely imaginary. Mm-hmm. This is not someone who actually exists. So he is given as an actor in this uh, carte blanche. Mm-hmm. He can be as completely free as he wants to be, and there's no rules that apply to him. But he finds a way to make everything believable. He finds a, he finds a way to, gr- to ground the stakes of this narrative so that way we really do feel that he is taking care of things or as best he can. And then when we go outside the law, there's no one better to make that okay than him because, you know, he's just like, I don't really give a shit. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm going to die, so. (laughs) Yeah. And then we move to Aaron Taylor Johnson as Ray. This is the roadside baddie leader. This is a dark, dark dude, and Taylor Johnson dives right the hell into him. He's giving off major Bill McKinney, Mountain Man, Deliverance vibes here and really playing into it. Apparently, Ford was having trouble casting this part. This is what he told us anyway. And he is good friends with Taylor Johnson's wife, Sam Taylor Wood, who directed Taylor Johnson as a young John Lennon in Nowhere Boy. And she later directed Fifty Shades of Grey. And Ford decided to give Taylor Johnson a shot. And it was a really good call. Another bit of trivia about this part during the Q&A, Ford said that the visual look of this movie was largely inspired by just pages he would cut out of a magazine of stuff that he thought looked cool. One such instance of this was an outdoor toilet, Uh, a guy using an outdoor toilet outside of a house. And he said he kept that picture for years and then included it here for Ray, which is appropriate. But this is a really, truly gross and evil performance that needs to be gross and evil and he's great i mean he this guy goes all in yeah again talking about the car scene 
is, you know, if you're watching it on subtitles, to hear how polite his dialogue is most of the time. Mm-hmm. Everything that he's actually really saying in that scene, except for very, very brief bursts of of terror, is all so polite. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's accommodating, and um and then to know though deep down that this none of this is it's the complete opposite of that is what makes that scene so terrifying. And watching him play that in that way, it's uh yeah. He won the Golden Globe for that, didn't he? Yeah, we're going to get yep. to that in a bit. But yeah, he did. And it was it was a great win. And then rounding out the cast real quick, Andrea Riseborough, Isla Fisher, Michael Sheen, Jenna Malone, and then, of course, Laura Linney, <laughs> who comes in for one scene and just as Amy Adams' mom, Susan, and just decimates her and kind of like lays out the entire movie yeah. and Susan's future and ends with that great line of, we all eventually turn into our mothers. And it's kind of like, Darlin, I know what you want. I know you have this idealistic, romantic version of what you want in your head, but it just ain't going to happen this way. And then it's, go ahead, give it your best shot. And, oh, I love Laura Linney. I love Laura Linney in this. It's got to be one of the best one-scene performances. I mean, that's a good question to think of. Like, what are, like, all the great, like, one-scene performances? Because it's a character that just comes in for one scene and leaves and never comes back again. And for Laura Linney, who's a leading actress, to just dive into something like this so willingly and then deliver, it's like, holy shit, man. I love that scene just for that reason. I was like, that's that's how you do it. Exactly. And that's kind of the benefit of being a really famous person in another world. He said he and Laura Lenny were friends from his fashion stuff. He had dressed her a few times and he called in a favor and she just came in for a day's work and that magnificent hair, the makeup and she just that accent and she gives it to us. I mean, what's not to love about Laura Lenny? God. And you, and you know that Tom Ford was thinking of that, too, where it's like, listen, this is a one scene performance, but I want to make one of the best one scene performances. Like there's a oh, point. Yeah. Like I'm not just bringing in like, you know, so we can, you know, develop plot here. Like we're going to mm-hmm. make this its own thing. And the scene very much feels like that. No small roles, folks. Mm-hmm. No small roles. You can dive into anything, whether you're given a minute or 100 minutes. Favorite scene. I thought we could break a few down. I can't say the ki- the kidnapping scene is the most memorable. It's certainly not my favorite. It's too hard to watch. I suppose damn near any scene with Shannon would be my favorite. But really, it's the one that I that I quoted. It's that scene of them in the diner when he says he has lung cancer and yeah, there's actually not anything he can do about it. And it's played kind of funny. And then the mood changes because, as you said, Bobby Andes has made it clear that he's he's going to be dead soon anyway. So let's go catch these animals. And it's great stuff. And I mean, him leaning in and asking Edward slash Tony, like, how far are you willing to go with this? Like, I'm dead in a year. I don't give it. This is my last case. You think I'm going to let these assholes get off? Nah. Yeah. You want to go kill them? <laughs> sure. I mean, it's like, and I love that when the stakes are, they change very quickly in that dinner conversation. And, and Shannon, in his way, he just always has 
a straight man humor about it. Mm-hmm. You know, he's John all goes, I need if we're gonna do this, like I need you to eat, and he tries and he's like, Can't this stuff's garbage? <laughs> he's like, and he looks like he's just gonna throw up. Some days I can hold it down, some days I can't. I love that scene. I love the Laura Lenny scene. I there's it's an embarrassment of riches, this movie. What's your favorite? The opening credits? Well, really well, I was gonna say <laughs> that's the best opening. Is it ever the best opening? Because it very well might be. And I'm not wanna say what it is. All I'm gonna say is the first time I saw it when we were in theaters, I just immediately was like, I'm going to love everything about this movie just because I don't know where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. But if you open up any movie, any story with the way this movie opens, like what a thing to do. What a thing to do. Um, favorite scene. Um, my favorite scene is actually the, um, the abortion scene. Yeah, powerful. I, I love that scene because I think that is the darkest of complexity uh, for what the characters are going through. You've got Amy Adams, who is about to do this thing, but she's in the arms of Army Hammer, who is the guy that she left Edward for. And just being that alone right there is already got to be one of the most emotionally challenging feelings to have Mm -hmm. to then be see edward right there seeing all of this i just it was one of those things where it's like what can you do to make this scene worse the what's the worst thing you can do and that was it um so i love that scene for that reason but this is one thing and it's one of those things I just love. It's just my personal filmmaking little things. It's when you completely have no regard and you call out exactly what this movie is. And it's the revenge painting. Mm-hmm. It's not even an interesting painting. It's literally a painting that has the letters that spell revenge. Right. Because ultimately, that's what this movie is about. By the time you get to the end, this whole entire thing was just to get revenge. <laughs> it really was. And it's yeah. really, really great. He talked about that in the Q&A too, that he knew exactly what yeah. he was doing, like spelling it out, literally, revenge right there. And that's why Amy Adams as Susan gets a little pissed off. She's like, when did this get here? Yeah. And I think, I, I just, I love that. She's really shaken and rattled by it. Um, favorite performance, love Amy Adams, love her to death, but I gotta go Michael Shannon as Bobby Andy's here. I love him in this. You're going to find me hard pressed to ever say that if there's a Michael Shannon performance involved, that it's not my favorite performance in the movie. So yeah, Michael Shannon. (laughs) There it is. Quick question. We, we've done a lot of talking about that scene, but I wanted to know, like, does it rank for you as one of the most disturbing movie scenes ever for me? I've, Yes, especially considering how little violence there is on screen. I don't really get scared by overtly violent acts. Gore does not scare me in movies, that is. In Nocturnal Animals, this scene is all emotional terror. It's the inability to react that's the most terrifying thing. There are certainly more disgusting and physically and sexually violent movie scenes than this. But this scene really deserves to be ranked up there. It's a tough scene, the removal of innocence. You set down on a simple road trip with your family, and then your life is completely ruined as a result. Awful. Ugh. How does that scene rank for you, though, like in terms of like disturbing factor? See, this is the interesting thing is like, yes, this scene is unbelievably disturbing, but it doesn't get me like that. Man, it does for me. It's not. I'm certainly not happy. I'm certainly not comfortable. 
but it doesn't get me in the way that um, certain scenes in A Clockwork Orange, like just for example, it's kind of kind of coming off the top of my head, disturb me more, and I can't get through. I can get through, but really struggle to get through. Yeah, because w- what we're scared by, triggered by, it's all different for everyone, and this is. I would probably say this is in a top five most disturbing movie scenes of all time for me. Mm -hmm. Not even kidding. I've seen this movie four times and I'm not happy to admit this, but I had to fast forward that scene twice. I didn't, obviously, the first time I saw it in the theater and I didn't for this viewing, but I have had to fast forward that scene because it is so unsettling to me. But yeah, like you said, everything, it's different for everyone. It it is. And I think that, that way you put it was like, what are scenes that like you have to fast forward through? I think that's the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Like for for whatever reason, like I don't need to fast forward through this one. I can sit with this and I can be okay. And I wish I could think of a better example just to kind of have that conversation. But that's a very good way to put it is the scenes that you fast forward you have to fast forward through. Yeah, and I don't have to do that often. I mean, I think irreversible is fair. Yeah, irreversible. That's one. Tough scenes in just movies in general that you see once and you're like, okay, Antichrist, the last, you know, ten minutes of that, I'm like, okay. Requiem for a Dream. Sure. Final five minutes. Brutal. <laughs> I can't get through that again. I'm glad I, I'm glad I got through it. I don't need to watch that again. Well, and you even told me you can never put yourself through Rosemary's Baby again. Oh, see, that's a good... Well, that's just a whole movie just because it just... That's the whole that, movie, yeah, yeah. it just bothers me. It feels so bad for her. Nocturnal Animals had one of the more complicated awards runs of any movie we've ever talked about. And we kind of touched on a little bit before, but... It wins the Grand Jury Prize at Venice Film Festival. That's a big deal. It lands three Golden Globe nominations, director and screenplay for Ford. And Aaron Taylor Johnson is a huge upset winner for Best Supporting Actor. He's stunned. No one really expected it. And it's like, okay, cool. That just happened. That's kind of wild. Later, the movie cleans up in BAFTA nominations. It gets noms for director, actor for Gyllenhaal, supporting actor Taylor Johnson, screenplay, cinematography, editing, music, production design, hair and makeup. Damn. Right. It wins none, but it's a good showing, despite, of course, a lack of love for Amy Adams. Then the Oscars come around, and it lands a single nomination, Best Supporting Actor, for Michael Shannon. And it's like, hey, I'm not mad at that. But no one really ever saw that coming. And the fact that it had such a good showing at BAFTA, it would have been really nice if it popped up a little bit more in the Oscars. But I do think this speaks well to Tom Ford's sentiment. Nocturnal Animals feels wholly European to me in the way that it looks, feels, and is performed. And it is a harsh critique of feeble masculinity of the American male and I don't think that sat right with many men, as I mentioned. Oh, well, I would have nominated this movie for damn near everything. Um, here's a fun question. Amy, you can't be nominated in the same category in the same year. So would you would you have nominated Amy Adams for Arrival or Nocturnal Animals? And if so, which one? Wow. What a, I go Arrival that year. Yeah what, yeah. what a question. Fuck it. I'll go with Nocturnal Animals for it, especially the second time around, because mm-hmm. the second time around watching this movie... I really felt her a lot more through it. I felt her um, dissatisfaction with herself and her life. And then watching the little subtle, as the movie was moving like along, as she was getting further and further into the story and in, in her life, the cracks that were starting to happen mm-hmm. 
for her and then to finally feel some semblance of hope and like the, I love that one scene really quick with the um when she finally gets the email response back from Jill and Hall that says it's perfect because that's one thing that you know we don't see a lot in movies that do with a, a certain reality that we have come to know in our life when it comes to our cell phones is that sometimes a certain message we don't need to respond to it we don't need to do anything but we get that message back and it's just everything Mm -hmm. like you're waiting to get something back in that way and all of a sudden she sees and you can see the relief wash over her Mm -hmm. and then all she does is she just lays and she puts the phone underneath her head because that's all she needed she was like oh god it came oh you know i don't know it's just a very interesting just because of the times we live in that that's the way things work uh scene but then yeah finally to get at the end poof god and 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 the most interesting thing and this is the always the biggest thing with endings is like wanting to see what scene would come next what happens to her now oh god so good so just for the sake of our conversation I'll give it to Amy Adams from Nocturnal Animals. And I'm really happy you mentioned that email because in the Q&A, Ford said that was very, very deliberate. It's a really short email. All he says is, Susan, comma, just let me know when and where. He does not say, I'll be there. Yep. Great. Can't wait to see you. Yep. It's, it's a really, really perfect ending. And it shows the passage of time in one of my absolute favorite ways, which is to push out to a master and do slow fades. Yeah. And that's exactly what we did for your yeah, movie. Yeah, there I yeah. go when they're leaving the meeting. I, you know, we did slow fades to show people leaving. I love the way they do that. Well, and that speaks to the beginning of this conversation when we talk about Tom Ford, you know, speaking our language because, you know, there I go. We had done that on our own. That was our own choice that we fell in love with to make. And then when you see exactly. another filmmaker do the same thing, you're like, oh, they, they see it the same way. Like they, they see the world, they want to tell their story in the same way that we want to tell our stories. So you do feel that, um, that, that same camaraderie in artistic expression with someone. And like you said earlier, it doesn't matter what the levels are, the tiers or whatnot. Bottom line, if we were to have a conversation with Tom Ford, he would totally get what we were saying. Yeah. So I love that. Go check out Nocturnal Animals, folks. It's really good. It's really unique. It is a dark sit. I mean, it's a tough movie. Yeah, it's it's a tough movie. Especially if you're willing to sit through it two, three times, you're going to get more out of it. It is incredibly edited, very well paced. And that brings us to our final section. What are you watching? You're going first this week. Give the folks something to watch. And this is a really easy one. This is just uh, staying on brand just because of Tom Ford. It's a single man. Fair. Yeah, you got to see it. It, 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 it. He also couldn't have made two different movies, both so well done for the stories that he's telling. They really do go well together it, it is in a double feature, I would imagine. Like, definitely start with a single man. Don't, 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 don't come out of a nocturnal animals and go into a single man. Yeah. And a single man is currently streaming on Netflix. Great call. Great call. I'm going doing something completely different something i genuinely just rewatched. ronin directed by john frankenheimer have you seen this de niro yeah yeah <laughs> okay okay so i watched this movie when it came out like on dvd so that would have been 1999 because the movie came out in the theaters in 98 and i did not understand a single word of it 
but, but I really enjoyed the action. And I rewatched it a few weeks ago, and this thing cooks. I mean, there's some there's some controversy over the screenplay credit, but David Mamet did a rewrite of the script, and his work is all over it. I'm a huge Mamet fan. It's Mamet's writing. It's John Frankenheimer directing. It's the kind of great adult, smart, R-rated thriller that we don't really get much of today. You really have to pay attention to it. There are triple, quadruple crosses. Check out Ronan if you can. That's it from us, folks. Good luck with Nocturnal Animals. A rough ride, but a really unique one. Thanks again for listening, and happy watching. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasTostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Next time, we're going to list our favorite movie from every year we've been alive. This is a crossover from a cool series we ran on Twitter, and we're excited to tell you why we love all of these movies. Stay tuned.